on a series, just a couple of lessons that we're going to be doing on a series called Let Love Rule. And of course, this being February, we know that there's lots of chocolate to be bought, cards to be exchanged, all like the day after Valentine's Day because all the husbands are going to forget. But, you know, that's going to happen at some point this month, and uh, there was not too much laughter going on right there. Uh, But okay, we'll let that go. But uh, we want to talk about love and relationships, and um, it's only going to be a couple of weeks long just because of the way the calendar is working out, but there's so much, so much to to say uh, about love and about relationships, about marriage, uh, just all of those those topics. And today, uh, you know, we might be talking a little bit more to the already married crowd today, but, um, and, and next week we're going to talk more to the singles or the dating uh, crowd, and, and, but you can't go to sleep if you find yourself in either camp, and I'm talking about the other one, because what we're talking about today and what we'll be continuing next week, it's really, really, really linked together, and so you got to pay attention. We got to get this right if we're going to be the church, if we're going to shine as a bright light in our world, and, and, and what's happening in our world is that the church is experiencing this really big disconnect with our world on the idea of marriage. And I'm only talking today about traditional marriage. I'm not, you know, talking about homosexual marriage or those kinds of things. That's a whole other topic and a whole other series. And I don't want to address that in this series or these couple of lessons. But I want to talk about traditional marriage. And even traditional marriage in our culture is just under such attack. And it seems like it's on the decline. It seems like it's on the ropes. And it's just, you know, it's really we need to talk about this and we need to understand this and we need to get this right. If we are going to be the light of the world, if we're really going to show uh, this world around us and the people around it, and this world kind of sounds so, you know, anonymous, right? But the people around us, our our friends and our family and our neighbors, if we're going to show them God's beautiful idea of marriage, then we got to, we got to get this right. We can't afford to mess this up. And so that's what we're going to be talking about over the next couple of weeks. And as I was thinking about, you know, kind of how, how do we approach this subject and where is the disconnect and that kind of stuff, something came to mind. Any parents ever done this with your kids because I said so? Wasn't that awesome? Like the first time I ever got to say that, I, I you know, it, there were no video recording device, like your, my phone didn't, couldn't record. I, I wish I could have recorded that like the first time I got to tell my kids because I said so. You know, it's just a wonderful thing. And man, my parents used that on me so many times when I was a kid and it ends the argument, doesn't it? It just ends the discussion. Like that's it. It is over done. I have said so. My size 13 has come down on the issue. Right, honey? My 13 can come down on that, you know, because I said so, and it's done. And that works until there's seven. Yeah, it it doesn't work after seven. It surely does not work at 16 and 15. It only works, as a matter of fact, if there's a respect for authority there. It only works if they respect you. It only, you know, it only works if there is love there, if there is the relationship equity to back up the because I said so. But if there is conflict or if there is distrust in the relationship, it doesn't work. And what's, what's, what's happening in our world is that the church and the Bible, it's in conflict with our world. 
We're in conflict with the society around us, and people distrust religion and Christianity even, maybe especially on a scale to which we've never experienced in the U.S. of A. And, and religious leaders, you know, kind of, they've been blown up and held up to this idol status a lot of times, and then they just can't live up to it because we're all human. We're all imperfect, and, and now it's, it's even beyond just the, the idea of a church. People are starting to distrust the Bible because the Bible can be twisted to say just about anything, and sadly, the Bible has been twisted and, and weaponized, and, 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 and a lot of people don't trust it. It used to be the good book, and now a lot of people in our society feel that the Bible is just one good book of many good books. And what makes your good book any better than my good book? And so there's this distrust and there's this conflict. And so because I said so doesn't work. And then the people in society and in culture look to the church and they say, well, why should we get married? And we say, well, because the Bible says so and because we say so and we're the church. But in a post-Christian culture, that's just not enough. Because the relationship's not there anymore. The culture is, doesn't trust the church and and in a post-Christian culture especially, this is another thing that people say. Because in a post-Christian culture, it's not that they've never heard the Bible. They've heard the Bible. They just walked away from it. And so you say, well, the Bible says so. And they say, well, yeah, but the Bible also says, right? And then they go to those really embarrassing parts in the front part of the Bible. And they ask you to explain them. And you can't explain them. So you're just like, well, that's different. That's the old part. You need to ignore the old part. And say, well, you said the Bible said that's in there. That's part of the Bible. So what do we do with that? And, and you know, the Old Testament's got murder and dysfunctional relationships and fam. You know, it's like it's, it's, it's messed up back there. And we use the Bible as our authority. And I know what some of you guys are thinking right now. Great. Bishop went on vacation, and now Jared's throwing out the Bible. That's not where I'm going. So everybody Relax. Calm down. That's not what we are saying. It's, it's not that we as the church need to throw out the Bible. It is time for the church to open the Bible. It's time for us to stop using the Bible like it's a baseball bat and hitting people over the head with it. It's time to open up the Bible and see the beauty and the wisdom of God. Come on, isn't God smarter than anybody? By definition, that's kind of what he has to be or else he's not really God. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, if God's only as smart as you, we're in trouble. So the question that I want us to start asking ourselves is, do we know why the Bible says so? Do I understand why the Bible says? Maybe we could put it this way. Why would a God who loves me so much say that to me? Why would a God who loves us so much say what he says about marriage. And we're going to talk about this. This is actually just, you know, one time we're talking about relationships and marriage. And we're going to be talking about this a lot this year. We're going to be filtering a lot of conversations kind of through this, conver this question this year. So I'm kind of introducing not just a series today. I'm kind of introducing really a series of series that we're going to be doing throughout this year because I think it's so important that we understand why a God who would love us so much would say the things that he says to us. And everything has to start with that understanding that God loves us and what he says for us is best. And so, but under, don't get nervous about this. For the first 300 years of the church's existence, the church blew up and expanded and just, it, it changed its world. I mean, 
that just set the Roman Empire on its ear and it overthrew Judaism that had crucified Jesus. It was victorious in the first 300 years. And for the first 300 years, nobody ever said, the Bible says, because there was no Bible. It wasn't until after 300 years that the church had been in existence that they were able to get the money together and get the permission to put together all of the letters and documents that make up what we call the Bible. The Jewish Christians had the Old Testament, and that's what they called the Bible, but that brought a whole load of problems into the Christian faith, and Paul spent almost his whole ministry kind of trying to combat these people that were trying to take the Old Covenant and bring it into the New Covenant reality. But they didn't have a Bible. They had letters written to help them understand why a God who loves us so much would say what he had said. And Gentile Christians had absolutely nothing to fall back on. And so Paul traveled around the Roman Empire, Paul and others, and they started all of these little gatherings of the Jesus movement. And, and, and you know, they, they, they kind of taught everybody to do what Jesus had said to do. They taught everybody to, to believe what Jesus had said we need to adopt as the one thing of the Christian faith, the one ethic of the Christian faith. And it's so amazing. One thing. One principle, one idea informed all of Christianity when they had no Bible. There was no Mount Sinai in the New Testament. There were no tablets of stone and Ten Commandments given. It was one thing because it had to be simple. Most people couldn't read and most people couldn't write. Paper was not everywhere. Paper was limited. Papyrus was limited. Not everybody could write and knew the alphabet and all of those kinds of things. And so one idea got shared from church to church to church and from the church starters to the church followers and from the Jesus movement starters to those who were Jesus followers. One thing informed everything in this new family that was made up of Jews who had just the Old Testament and Gentiles who had nothing. One thing. One idea informed all of the Christian life. One idea taught the Christian life and became the pattern for the Christian life. It was one thing that drove out the need for any more things. And can you imagine if your whole of your, the whole of your Christian experience could be summed up by one thing? And if one thing could guide your lifestyle and your, your experience and your ethics and your practice, it could all be condensed down to one thing. Bet you want to know what the one thing is, don't you? I'm not giving it to you today. No, I'm just kidding. We're going to talk about it today. And today we're going to look at how this one thing touches one thing, which is the subject of marriage. Because our world needs to know and we need to know so we can tell them we need to know and our world needs to know how the one thing relates to marriage. Who in the world is getting married nowadays? From 1960, in 1967, more than 70% of the population was married in 1967. Last year, around 50%, but it's steadily declining of our population is married. It's estimated that in another 20 years, that percentage will drop to around 20% of the population will be married. Only one out of every five people that you know or work with or live around will be in a marriage. The UN did a study and compiled data from 1970 all the way to 2005, and they found out that in 80% of the nations of our world, this percentage of people who are married in those various nations dropped. In 80% of those nations, it fell. Worldwide, people 
are abandoning the institution of marriage. In our society alone, half of marriages, about half of marriages end in divorce. And people talk about this. You know, when they, when they grow up in those homes, they think, well, my parents were divorced and things turned out okay because when my parents were married, things were miserable. My home was horrible when they were married and I suffered abuses or maybe my mom or maybe my dad suffered abuses or my parents were so unhappy when they were in their marriage. And so when you tell me that I need to be married, if I grew up in a home that had to break up because the marriage was so just broken, like why am I going to believe you? Because you're a Christian? Because the church says so? Because the Bible says so? No, that's, that's horrible. And not only that, but even among you Christians, those who call themselves Christians, the divorce rate is around 33% of Christian marriages. Because there are some ideas that have infiltrated our thinking just from living in the society. According to statistics, 15% of the people who divorce, divorce within the th- first three years of having a child. And it doesn't get any better if you just say, well, we're just going to be a couple and not get married. If you are a couple and not married, 40% of couples separate within the first three years of the birth of their first child. 80% of divorces come in the first four and a half years. And in the United States alone, there was one divorce every 13 seconds. So why should I get married? Because I said so? Because you said so, I don't think it's enough. I don't think it's good enough. I don't think it's working, obviously. The number one reason given for people divorcing used to be money. It is now a lack of passion and excitement. The passion's gone. The excitement's gone in our marriage within the first, 80% of them say within the first four and a half years of being married. And so people go looking for more passion and more excitement in other relationships. But the tragic thing is 67% of people's second marriages end in divorce. And if people are brave enough to get married a third time, 73% of those marriages end in divorce. And the top two reasons for people getting a divorce, number one is infidelity, that lack of passion, lack of excitement. Number two is money. And uh, a site called wevorce.com that is trying to help people kind of amicably divorce, talk about the number one reason. And 80% of divorcees report that lack of passion and excitement as the major factor in their divorce. Because people are thinking, I found the one. I found the one. You are the one. And when I saw you, when I saw you, I felt the earth move under my feet. Saw the sky come tumbling down, tumbling down. And I feel it, I feel it, I feel it, I feel it. And four years later, I don't feel it anymore. What happened? The whole relationship is based on a feeling. And if we're honest with each other, when we need a burrito, our feelings change. Anybody ever been hangry in the house? Can I hear a good amen? Yes. Y'all are going to Super Bowl tailgates pretty soon. And I know some of y'all are going to get hangry before I finish this sermon. Food messes with our emotions. But we try and build lifelong relationships on emotion. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work. 
and wait, since I don't feel it anymore, they must not have been the right one. And so I need to go find the next right one. I need Mr. Right 2.0. I need Mrs. Right 2.0, even though I still might be with Mr. or Mrs. Right 1.0. And so people want to leave. And the problem is, the problem is, there is a myth that we are supposed to find Mr. or Mrs. Right. This is a myth. This is a myth. Turn around and tell somebody, it's a lie. Oh, come on. You can, yes, thank you. Oh, I feel it. I'm about to hand over the microphone right now. If you can say God using three syllables, you can preach. God. <laughs> And everything in our culture feeds this myth. Fairy tales end with happily ever after. That's a lie. That's a lie. And the whole story is supposed to be about the process of finding the prince. The whole story is about, supposed to be about the journey of finding the princess. Rescue her from her distress. Ride off into the sunset on the white horse. Never mind that the horse wasn't built for two. It's really a donkey. And that coat of mail pinches in all the wrong places. And then can I be real this morning? Can I be, since I'm already just like being goofy, can I be real this morning? You think you find the princess? She's the princess. She walks down the aisle. You say, I do. Strings are playing. Doves get released. Just like it is beautiful. And then the next morning, Gonna get real here. She passes gas for the first time. Wait a minute, that's not in the fairy tale. You find the prince, you married the prince, and a week later he leaves his toenail clippings on the coffee table. Mmm, mmm, mmm. Wait, I thought the story was you were a beast until my perfect beauty changed you into your true self. I thought my saliva had transforming powers. And when I kissed you, you turned from a frog into a prince. And now the fairy tale is actually working against us because it's teaching us that we can change them into what we think is better. It's a fairy tale. It's a lie. It's a myth in America. And the world has bought into it hook, line, and sinker. And we're unhappy, and our homes are broken, and our kids grow up thinking that mom and dad are supposed to love each other forever, but now that they don't love each other forever, is their love for me that's supposed to be forever also one day? Come on, somebody. It hurts. It hurts, and it damages, and it wounds, all because we, we are buying into a lie. And then I'm being goofy, but... Sub in those failures that I talked about, you know, his toenails. Substitute that for a drinking problem. Substitute her issues for credit card debt. Then bring that into a marriage. And suddenly what you thought was the one and the perfect person you see very clearly was not. They say love is blind and marriage is an eye opener. That's the truth. And suddenly you think, man, they weren't the one. 
She wasn't the one. He wasn't the one. And then anger sets in and regret sets in and resentment sets in. And we start asking ourselves, wait, wait, wait. How long is this supposed to last for? Till death? Do Whose death? Can that be arranged? Is it any wonder today that young adults are avoiding marriage? When we live in a whole generation of adults where 50% come from divorced homes, that's only the marriage stats. That's not even the single parents who never married. Is it any wonder that they're asking us, why should I get married, church? Why should I get married, Jesus followers? And we turn around and we tell them, because I said so. And it doesn't work. And as a church, we're meant to influence our world. The gospel is supposed to be good news. But in our own marriages, they don't look like very much good news. Come on. Do our relationships make the people that we know and who come over to our homes, do our relationships make the people around us wish that they had what we have? Do our marriages look so beautiful that they really do shine as lights in the darkness? And sadly, too many times they don't because we as a church got married under the right person, wrong person myth. We're trying to live with Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright, and the only difference is Christian is, well, we just keep forgiving them when they mess up because that's all you're supposed to do, just when they mess up, forgive them. When they mess up, forgive them. When they mess up, and secretly, we're disappointed. Secretly, we have hurts and we have issues. But in the New Testament, it wasn't supposed to be that way. When they started following Jesus, they didn't have a manual. They didn't have a self-help book. All they had was one thing that got passed around from Christian to Christian, from follower to follower, from Paul to the churches. One thing. Could there really be one thing that if we did this one thing, it would so elevate our marriages that the people around us would say, wow, I want what you have. Could there really be one thing that just stands in such stark contrast to the pain of the brokenness that it could heal the people around us who don't see any other way out of the thing that they lied themselves into? Could it be that there was one thing that doesn't make us point a finger at anybody in judgment but makes people run to us in desperation and asks us to share the secret of our joy and our happiness in marriage? Could there be one thing that if we could change this one thing, it could set up a whole generation of people that we know, family that we know, friends we know, and especially our kids to look at marriage in a whole new light and to want what we have. As you might have guessed, it starts with the whole debunking of the myth of finding Mr. and Mrs. Wright. It starts in a very simple place. It starts with the idea of becoming Mr. and Mrs. Wright. It is about becoming Mr. and Mrs. Wright. And today, again, I'm talking a little bit more to the already marrieds, and, but if you're not yet married, you need to understand this. This one thing is linked to both kinds of people, whether you're married or not married yet. This is so important because it's true that your relationship will never be healthier than you. Your we will never be better than the me. Come on, say it, somebody. We will never be better than me. Turn around and tell somebody close to you, we will never be better than me. Yeah, I guess that could have gotten awkward if you're sitting somebody by somebody you're not in a relationship with. But it's still true. 
The better you become, the happier your marriage will become. Because usually what happens is couples don't have relationship problems. Couples have individual problems that they bring into their relationships. People don't usually have relationship problems. People have individual problems that they bring into the relationship. And when you start timesing things by two, things just get bigger, including your problems. Anybody ever buy something from Best Buy and you take it home and it doesn't work? Yeah? It's so annoying, man. Maybe not Best Buy, Walmart, Target. It could be anybody. Places where they sell things from other manufacturers, you take it home, and it doesn't work. And what happens? You're supposed to take it back to the store, and then you get all the way back to the store, and they say, well, did you read the paper in the top of the box? I said, no, I didn't read the paper in the top of the box. I'm a man. I don't read the paper in the top of the boxes. I just pull the thing out and figure out how it works. So we'll write in the paper on the top of the box. It says to call the manufacturer. If it doesn't work, don't bring it back to this store. Anybody ever ran into that before? Don't return it, call the manufacturer. Don't come stand in line to return it, call the manufacturer. Sadly, in marriages, too many times people are ready to jump into the return line without going back to the manufacturer. We need to go back to the manufacturer, the guy that put us together. It's best to begin with a beginner. And we all have a creator God who was wise enough to give us relationships. He was wise enough to create the capacity within us for love. And for marriage. And so if our marriages and our love and our relationships are broken, we need to call him. And a lot of times the issue is that you didn't plug it in. (laughs) Well, I'll just leave that one out there. Some laughter from a guilty party I heard back there, Ruthie. (laughs) Melvin, make her call before you get in that car, brother. But it's the same thing with us. We need to check in with the manufacturer. There really is one thing. And in the New Testament, this New Testament, it's a collection of letters. It's a collection of documents that were written to the early followers, the first followers of Jesus. And they didn't have a Bible, but they were being introduced to the Jesus movement. They were being introduced to the idea of, hey, Jesus has made you new creatures And so if you will follow this one thing, you will become a new creature. You will be a new creation in Christ Jesus. You'll be a new kind of person. And so things had to be simple. And so these letters were given, but not kind of like as a magic eight ball. It wasn't supposed to be that you're supposed to think, well, how do I fix my spouse? Let me go to the New Testament and find it out. No, it's supposed to be for our manufacturer to tell us how to be fixed. It was instruction manuals for me because the we will never be better than me. It's not going to happen. But what happens is that we try and turn the Bible into an instruction manual for other people. Oh, that's the owner's manual for you. That's the instructions of how to repair, how to troubleshoot You, any husbands, know what it's like to have your wife try, no, don't raise your hand. We'll just leave that one alone. But we try and turn the Bible into an instruction manual for other people because, of course, the problem can't be us. It's not me. It's you. And especially husbands and wives, we have been using the Bible to try and line up our husbands and wives. And we get mad because they're not following the instructions that we know were written for them. They're not following the instructions to teach them how to be Mr. or Mrs. Right. Because even we as Christians, we have come into our marriages with the idea that I have found the right one. 
I have found Mr. Right or Mrs. Right. It's just the result. Christianized a little bit. They put a little, you know, sponge foam safety protector around the, ed- the edges called forgiveness, but it's still the right person myth that if I can get him to act right, everything will be all right. If I can get her to act right, everything will be all right. But we overlook the mirror. We don't look at ourselves because I married the right person and they're just not acting like it. So the problem is I need to fix them. Can I just say to you this morning, you fix your pets, not your partner. Fix your pets, not your partner. And you know, neither you nor your spouse got married so that you could be fixed. Nobody gets married because they think, well, I just need somebody to fix me. Hello, it's the truth. That's not why we get married. And so romantic partners who are not interested at all in becoming the right person become husbands and wives who aren't interested in becoming the right person. And round and round and round it goes. And where it stops, it's supposed to stop with us, but where it stops, nobody knows. But when the New Testament talks about love, and talks about getting into relationships. There's an interesting twist on how the New Testament talks about love. It does not talk about love as a feeling. In the New Testament, love is a verb. It's something that you do. See, we're trying to spend all of our days trying to fall in love. And Jesus told us he wants us to spend the rest of our lives behaving in love. We're not supposed to fall in love. We are supposed to behave in love. It's the difference between covenant relationships and consumer relationships. And we taught on this, I think, last year, the year before, and I might teach that lesson again. I think I need to bring that back. But think of a covenant relationship as the relationship you have with your kids. Like, no matter what your kids do to you or say to you, you can't take them and drop them off on somebody else's doorstep. Even in our society, we know that. You cannot do that. You are tied to that kid, and you are to love them through their difficult times in hopes that there will be better times on the horizon. Can I hear an amen from any parents that aren't going to leave their kids on any doorsteps? I hope the kids' parents are sitting over here this morning. Nobody over here committed. That's a covenant relationship that I love you no matter what. That I love you and I'll care for you no matter what. A consumer relationship's like a grocery store. You're in that relationship only as long as you're getting good produce and it doesn't cost you too much. As soon as the produce goes bad or leaves its toenails on the coffee table or starts costing you too much, you're looking for a new grocery store. Hello. That's the difference between a covenant relationship and a consumer relationship. And what happens is that in consumer relationships, we start measuring what the other person is giving. We start evaluating what the other person is giving to us. Because if it's not good produce, and if it costs too much, I'm out of here. And so you have to. If you're in that kind of a relationship, you have to start measuring what that other person is giving to you. Because they're the right one. They're the perfect one for you. So what they give you should be perfect. And every time they give you something and it's not perfect, 
Every time they give you something and it's not what you think you need, then you begin to resent them and that relationship. When we put expectations on a human, hello somebody, when we put expectations on a people, people fail. If you're a people, you fail. You know what I'm saying is true. And so we condemn people and we say, well, they changed. And we say, well, it's just not like it was. And we blame them. And we all know that lots of things get solved by blaming other people. Not. Not. Nothing gets solved by blame. And then Jesus comes along and he tells us a new command I give to you. Love one another. He did not come along and say, feel good about one or another. Jesus did not command us to feel something. Jesus commanded us to do something. To do something. Jesus is so smart. Jesus, you know, if Jesus was a marriage counselor, if you'd come into his office, Jesus would tell you, go home and love each other. That would be his advice. Somebody say, well, I can't love her. Well, you're supposed to love her. Love your wife. That's in there. It's in the Bible. You have to love your wife. It's in the new part, not in the old part. It's in the new part. Love your wife. Well, I can't love her as my wife. Okay, fine. You're supposed to love each other, and that's how other people are going to know that you're my disciple. So just love her because she's your sister in Christ. He's got you covered. He saw it coming. Well, I can't love. I'm not even sure she's saved anymore. You should have seen what she did to me. You should have heard what she said to me. We're about to move out. And he said, well, I got that covered too. Love your neighbor. Well, she's not very neighborly. She hurt me. Hacked my Facebook account. Put all kinds of crazy. She's not acting very neighborly. She's turned against me. To which Jesus says, love your enemies. (laughs) You're sunk. You're stuck. You might as well give in to the fact that you and we have to do what Jesus said. And then he goes on to give us the one thing. This one thing that became the one thing of the whole Jesus movement. And it permeates all the New Testament. And it consolidates all of the Old Testament. And it crystallizes it. And it brings it into one idea. And this one thing can change everything. If we can learn this one thing, we will never be the same. Relational conflict will go away. It dismantles our consumer version of love. It robs us of the right to be someone else's judge and it takes away our ability to sit there and just constantly measure what the other person is giving us. Jesus said, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Can you imagine a relationship where two people are absolutely sold out to the idea of not measuring what the other person is giving, but only measuring what we each are giving into the relationship? The only one I measure is me. And guess what? The we will follow the health of me. Oh, do you guys see it? Do you guys see it coming? This is even better than the golden rule. What's the golden rule? Do unto others as you would have others do to you. 
But it's still conditional on others. Jesus broke the golden rule, blew up the golden rule, gave us something so much better than the golden rule. He said, no, no, you love each other, not the way that each other loves each other. You love each other as I have loved you. And we all know how Jesus loved us, that at our lowest, he found us, that at our weakest, he was our strength, that at our dirtiest, he came and cleaned us up and forgave us. Oh, I wish somebody was in the room who knew what it was to taste of the love of Jesus who found me like I was but his love was strong to change me and to give me hope Mm. Mm. do to them what I have done for you because see if I only love you like you love me it's conditional If I only love you as much as you love me, then I am forced to be a judge and a lover. Come on. If I am here to judge what you are giving to me and to judge the amount of love you are giving to me, I'm biased for me. We wouldn't even allow that in the Olympics. No. He said, stop judging each other in the way you love and just look at me. Just look at how much I loved you. Just remember how I found you. Just remember how I saw potential in you where everybody else and everything else had written you off. You tried to fix you. You couldn't. You were hopeless in that area. You were gone in that circumstance. But I have loved you with an everlasting love that eternally hopes for you. Think about it. He gave to us when we had nothing to give to him in return. He gave to us completely without the expectation of us returning anything back to him. And when we love each other as Jesus has loved us, then how the other person responds, it becomes inconsequential. It does not even matter anymore. But now I am free to love. Now think about it. Think about it. Now. Now, I'm free to love you in sickness and in health. For richer, for poorer, and poorer, and poorer. For better, for worse. If I get a better version of you, or if I get a worse version of you. I love you forever. Because Jesus has shown me what real love is. And it's the one thing. It's the one thing. Come on, can we pause right here and just worship? Come on. His love's beautiful. Whose love is like the love of Jesus? Come on, can you pause and worship? Could you close your eyes and lift up your hands right where you're sitting? Jesus, who is like you? Jesus, who compares to you? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. But wait, Jesus. Wait, Jesus. You never dated anybody. Right? Relationship advice from a single guy. He never dated anybody. Or did he? Did Jesus date? Did I don't know if... And Paul comes along after Jesus is left, and Paul is there to help the early followers of Jesus follow Jesus, and he picks up on the one thing principle that Jesus left. And before Jesus, Paul followed rules, but after 
Jesus, Paul realized and Paul says that this one thing sums up all of the other things. And in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21, he tells us, submit to one another. Submit to one another. Wait, wait. Now, I've been in church a while. It's supposed to be the wife submit to the husband. All the men are afraid to laugh on that one. I've been in church for a while. It's supposed to be the wife submit to the husband. We all know that submit means to subordinate oneself, to put yourself under my authority, Paul. I am confused because you're saying submit to one another. And Paul goes on and he says, well, let me give you the example and the reason that I'm telling you to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's the as I have loved you part of the submit to one another. You're looking sideways and I need you to look up. You're looking at the other person, and I need you to look at the one who came down. You submit to one another not because of one another. We submit to one another because Jesus submitted himself to us. We place ourselves under the burden of the other's needs because Jesus placed himself under the weight of our sin. We place ourselves under the weight of our partner's failures because Jesus came low and served our failures. And just in case you think this wasn't meant for families, Paul goes on later in the chapter and he says, Wives, submit to your husband. And husbands, love your wife. And notice, she has an extra submit, but the equal and opposite response is not dominate. It's not wives submit to your husband and husbands live with your boot on her neck. It's not wives submit to your husbands and husbands, you get to make all the decisions and be the big cheese. Big cheese is nowhere in the New Testament. In Greek, Hebrew, nothing. It's not in there. Husbands, love your wives. Submit to him as long as he is loving you as Christ has loved the church and gave himself for her and gave himself for her and laid down his life for her. See, this is the thing, a lot, especially in 2018. Whoa, 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 Jared, you're telling me you're going to actually get up there on a Sunday, Super Bowl Sunday? People could have stayed home and ate chicken wings and they came to hear this? But you're telling women to submit to the man? It's so anti-feminism, so antiquated. Let me just ask you one thing, ladies. If you could find a man who would lay down his life for you, who would come home and hand over the paycheck and say, I got this for you, and I wanted that thing, but you know what? What you want and what you need is more important. And you've had a hard day. You've had long hours, and especially in 2018, she works and he works but some old ideas want her to come home and do all the house chores while he sits down and picks up the remote. Hello, somebody. If you're going to let her go do what you do, then you better do what she does. Yeah, I thought I'd get some clapping on that one. Jared for president. Jared for president. If you found a man that loved you and put you first and talked about you like Jesus talks about the church? Would you have any problem saying, baby, what do you want? Come on, somebody. 
Well, we're in church. Don't take it there. But you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Baby, how can I live for you? And you have this principle of mutual submission where he is living for her and where she is living for him. And suddenly you guys can't help but, you know, try and outdo the other one in giving and in being and in blessing and in loving because he's trying to love her like Christ loves the church and she is so willing to give herself to someone who would love her like that. And there is equal and there is submit to one another. And it is not he dominates her. It is each living for the other. He's willing to lay down his life, to sacrifice himself for her like Christ has done for the church. And over and over and over and over again in the New Testament, it brings us back to this one thing that we are to love each other. is Christ has loved the church. You are to love him like Jesus Loved you. You are to love her like Jesus loved you. You are to give yourself the way that Jesus has given himself for us. And this is so scary. This is so scary. That if I stop measuring what you are giving to me, well, there's a chance that I'm going to give more than I receive. You're right. That could happen. Just like Jesus died on the cross, knowing there was a chance you might push him away. You might walk away. That you might not accept him like billions of people have rejected him. But still, when we look at the love of Jesus Christ, is there anything more beautiful? Is there anything more perfect than the love of Jesus Christ? It is the ideal. It's the pinnacle It's what real love is. It is in such contrast to fairy tales that are made up stories from the minds of fallen people who were broken in love themselves. But when God, who is love, gave us the historical reality and stepped into our world, he redefined love. He showed us what love is supposed to be. And we keep wanting to return something that's not really needing to be returned. We just need to go back to the maker. We just need to figure out what it is in us that he needs to change so that we can begin loving each other the way that Jesus has loved us. The way that he has loved me. The way that he loves you. He gave himself for you. And in all your faults, I feel the Lord in this moment. I feel the Lord because it's my story, and I know it's your story too, but in spite of all of my faults and in spite of all of my weaknesses and in spite of all the things that I wish so bad I could go back and do over, and I know I'll never get the chance, he still loves me. still loves me. The Bible says he sings over me. He sings. You know what it's like to have Jesus singing over you? Come on, somebody. There's nobody that can love like Jesus can love. Love him. Love her as I have loved you. Can we all stand this morning?